0: Alright, is everybody ready?
1: Uh, everybody's ready for the weekend.
0: Let's get ready to rumble! I don't know if I said oh, that God. right. Sorry.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've had five hours of sleep and a lot of caffeine.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, okay.
2: Oh! <laughs> oh!
0: Davenport Podcast, where we talk about retro horror and sci-fi television. For this episode, we're going to discuss the HBO made-for-TV science fiction film, Cosmic Slop, from 1994. We are going to go full spoilers for this, so if you have not seen Cosmic Slop from 1994, please go to YouTube. We will have a link in our show notes on our homepage at thehaunteddavenport.com. But full spoilers for this, YouTube seems to be the only way to track this gem down. We're going to get into a long discussion about this excellent and somewhat obscure piece of television. Mm-hmm. And with me for the discussion are my regular co-host and also members of my family, also known as some of my favorite family. Aww. We've got... Yeah. There's that that would be Andy. Hello. My <laughs> and Val, my sister. Hello. And Drew, my husband.
1: Hey. So are we going in order of your favorites?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I always forget to do introductions. I just launch right in, and I'm Allison by the way. If you're new to the show, um yeah, that's who we are. If Wait, you're how not How
1: are you related to yourself then?
0: I that's a, a, like that's a that's a very complicated
1: questions. question, Ru.
0: That's... <laughs> <laughs> I usually different
1: podcast. I'm sorry. I have, yeah. this, I
0: have this terrible habit. If you've been a long time listener to the show, and I apologize, of just like launching into what we're covering, and I always like I gotta gotta introduce everybody. I gotta introduce everybody, and it's not it's not anything other than just podcasting jitters It's okay
1: i got a bad habit of making a joke at the very end so
0: (laughs) we like that
1: derailing it right right from the beginning
0: so it's been the first time in a couple episodes since we've had the gang all here and we're really glad to have andy back because you know scheduling in the time of covid is nuts as many of you out there know and we hope you all are doing well What's
1: um, this COVID thing you talk what's about? What's this COVID thing? I've been living yeah. under a rock for a
3: year and a half. What's going right. on? Uh,
0: right. Oh, so, so
1: you're one of my customers. Perfect. <laughs> no.
0: Uh, <laughs> um, so we're going to get right into this. And and one of the things that I want to say before we start is that um, a lot of times the stuff that we cover is stuff that um, I would categorize as like fun, fun distractions, maybe kind of cheesy. And this. This one's going to make you uncomfortable, probably, likely. It's not necessarily a pleasant or fun watch, but I think it's really well made. And I think there's a lot of valuable discussion here. And I think being uncomfortable is important. That's how growth and change happens. So just, you know, just a little bit of a warning um, that you're not going to – this isn't going to be – a really fun episode of Star Trek some episodes of Star Trek aren't that fun this isn't going to be Roddy McDowell and Night Gallery
3: no um, yeah this is, this is going to be gonna a little be, heavier probably a little more political um, it's
0: going to be yeah a little more intense
3: Yeah. although I, I will say that if you're a fan of the uh, Adult Swim cartoon series The Boondocks uh, this will be right up your alley uh, if you enjoyed Lovecraft Country on HBO more recently also right up your alley this is right in line with both of those things
0: and I forgot to mention the thing that caught our attention and why we covered this in the first place. Drew and I discovered this um, because YouTube recommended it to us. So, <laughs> so all hail the glow cloud, the algorithms. Um, we we were just you know checking out different things. We Drew and I watch a lot of YouTube, and our tastes are all over the place. And and we see this little thumbnail for a George Clinton hosted sci-fi anthology, which is what this is. And, and-
1: literally earlier that day we were driving home and um, oh, I'm trying to think of what Parliament song came on, but there was some there was some very uh, very funky tunes coming home and and Parliament was on, so it was like a weird cosmic thing going on it was some cosmic slop that's what it was was
0: a plate of shrimp moment (laughs) it was definitely
1: a plate of shrimp moment
0: (laughs) so cosmic slop is also um for you funkadelic and george clinton and parliament fans out there it's uh the fifth album put out by funkadelic and it came out in july of 1973 and this series this anthology um show was uh It has the same title, and then George Clinton is hosting, and he comes in between each segment and has little comments about each thing.
1: Which is really the only connection is the name and George Clinton. Right. Other than that, it doesn't really have anything to do with the Parliament Funkadelic or the song or the album Cosmic Slop. No. No,
0: although there's some themes in that album and the the title album song that... Mm -hmm kind of relate to some of the stuff going on here just right. a little bit so yeah.
3: and I, I i understand that this would not have fit the tone of the movie cosmic slop but i was disappointed that there was not more parliament funkadelic funk music in it <laughs> to begin with <laughs> um it, 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 it you know it was appropriate i understand that but it, it was also a missed opportunity so
0: <laughs> well and i have to i have to be honest i think because i had never heard of this um I did not have access to HBO in the early '90s. Also, I was in junior high, so it was just kind of, you know, we had like basic cable or whatever. Probably would
1: have flown over your head.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was aware of who George Clinton was, but yeah, this wasn't this wasn't something that that I would have come across, and um, and I honestly neither one of us had ever heard of it. And I think because we saw George George Clinton and um, sci-fi, my first thought was like, is this going to be like? Like something that inspired the mighty Boosh. Like I thought we were <laughs> in for some like fun psychedelic kind of ride and that is not what this is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um
1: The introductions are fun and psychedelic. The
0: introduction well they are, but he- don't
1: don't be afraid that we're um from the way we're talking about it, it sounds like you shouldn't watch this. You should definitely watch this. You should and in definitely fact, watch this. You're on your computer right now, probably, or at least you're on some kind of device that you could easily switch over to YouTube right now. Go watch this, because we are going full spoilers, and there is some kind of twist endings and things in here. Mm-hmm.
0: Especially the first story segment has, has you know... It's a big the first twist. one's I, I, a
1: roller, coaster. yeah, a couple of twists, actually. It's pretty good.
0: Yeah, yeah. and we're gonna get we're going get in depth with it. And then also, um, just, you know, this is something this is something really interesting. And if you're especially if you're a sci-fi fan or like speculative fiction, I think this is something that you would want to watch and appreciate because I think that sci-fi has a lot to say, the genre itself. I mean, horror has a lot to say too, as an avid horror fan. But I think, I think sometimes it's easy to dismiss everything as, you know, the Jetsons and space rockets and there's, there's so much more depth and it's, it's a lot easier to say things that are um, problematic about our society or make comments about where we're headed or where we're at or just human nature in general. If you frame it within the realm of science fiction, people seem to be more willing to take it. Like as evidenced by, the Twilight Zone series. You know, it was Rob Sterling was able to say a lot of things mm-hmm. that would have really upset people had it just been a straightforward drama.
3: Yeah. You, 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 I, I am a big proponent of sci-fi too. And I love the genre as uh, an excellent place to explore ideas that are maybe taboo or too sensitive, you know, set in present day, but you also run the risk in sci-fi of your message completely going over people's heads. Like, uh, my favorite example of this is the movie starship troopers, which is, just really taking the piss out of, like, fascism and militarism right. and a military society yeah. and all that stuff. But there are people who unironically love that movie because it's like, yeah, that's what the world should be like. And you know, they're like, oh,
1: God, no, please. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: always scary when people when, miss Yeah, the when comment.
4: people
1: are like, I can't wait until we're fighting space bugs. Yeah, you're
3: like, yeah. no, that's, oh, God, this is the guy who did Robocop. How are you missing this? Right,
4: right. <laughs>
1: yeah, they don't get the... Uh, the robocop
3: either yeah right they think robocop is a pro is a pro police story you know
4: (laughs) it's so funny that you mentioned starship troopers because like that's one of my favorite movies um i just just adore starship troopers um because like sometimes i feel like sci-fi authors are also sort of missing the point of what sci-fi is supposed to be doing as it because like genre fiction is generally like looked down upon in the quote unquote literary community. It's not considered as serious or as intellectual, even though it's where like a lot of discussion of like really big topics happens because it happens under the guise of something right. frivolous it or, yeah. or outlandish. And the thing that I always think of when I think of sci-fi that really resonates and has like a super, important message to think about but that the author doesn't understand what the message is is the Enders game series <laughs> Oh, Orson Scott and that's hard. essentially kind of the same plot as Starship Troopers but with children
2: yeah <laughs>
4: because it's about military conscription and genocide and othering and it's about like what are the what are the drawbacks when we militarize nations or when we when we become such a unified front globally fighting like a cosmic enemy or like a larger metaphysical menace. And then when that enemy is dealt with, like what does that mean for these like very tenuous connections we've made? And like the Ender's Game, the whole series is incredible. It is an incredible meditation on like the psychological effects of participating in war and the burden of, being someone of like being the person who pushes the big red button ostensibly and what we owe to each other when we're doing like a life reflection or when we're doing a historical reflection,
2: mm-hmm.
4: but it's written by like, just like he's just like, not like a solid person. <laughs> <laughs> I just ate it. I just ate it so much, but I love those books.
0: <laughs> let's, let's get into Let's get into the first segment. There's three segments in cosmic slop. And the first one is titled Space Traders, and it's based on a short story called The Space Traders. And Val, you actually are familiar a little bit, probably the most familiar of all of us with this short story and the person who wrote it, Derek Bell. Do you want to talk about that a little bit before we get into the synopsis?
4: So um, Derek Bell was a constitutional law professor and civil rights advocate. Um, I didn't know this until I think last year. because um, I So I read The Space Traders in college for a class um, and I think that was in like the summer of like 2015. And it has just really stuck with me ever since um, because the, the summer that I read it was right after I think Trayvon Martin was, was murdered. Oh, yeah. um, oh Jesus. And so like, it kind of seemed, it kind of felt to me, cause like I was in my young twenties at the time. And this was like, you know, because of the bubble that I have lived in my whole life, it felt to me like the world was falling apart. And I was like, I cannot believe that I am just now becoming aware of all of this stuff. Um, and, you know, I just, I thought that the world was going to collapse in flames um, because my eyes were being opened to so many things, so many new concepts and ideas for the first time. And one of those, one of the things that just happened to coincide with that was I was reading this short story one night for a class and I was like, Oh my God, Oh my God, what is happening? Oh my God. And of course, like I'm in a class full of, you know, white children in a state university. um, And the class was being taught. um, It was like a four week class. And so like we weren't going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I have not stopped thinking about it ever since. And I talk about it all the time, um, but I didn't realize that. So Professor Derek Bell, the author of the short story, right, he was actually the Dean of the U of, University of Oregon Law School for five years. Really? In the mm-hmm. So cool. And then he, he had a brief stint as a law professor at Stanford University, which is the law school that mine and Andy and Allison's dad went to and um, And so, um, Jay Barl actually had some crossover (laughs) with, with Derek Bell and he doesn't have like a super favorable opinion of him. So I'm like throwing him under the bus a little bit. (laughs) Hi dad. (laughs) Hi dad. I already, I texted him and told him I was going to, you know, like hold him in the court of public opinion. But, uh, (laughs) Derek Bell was also a long-term professor at NYU law, which was the law school that one of my best friends went to. And he has... There's a whole series of constitutional law um, classes uh, named after him and in honor of him because of the way that he taught. It sort of changed the way that NYU Law presents law school, um, the humanizing element of law school. And so Derek Bell was, in my opinion, as someone who is looking back on his life because he passed away in 2011. um, I think he's awesome. And I just, this story, if this is the only if this is like his longstanding legacy, aside from his impacts on the NYU law community, like he seems brilliant. And like, he was saying things that people still find controversial. Like even as recently as 2012, like Breitbart news, you know, a very credible news source. Yeah. Picked up, like found the story like right after he had died and used it to weaponize against president Obama at the time. We and came like, across that. We actually
0: yeah. found that and we were having a discussion about it and I was like, Why? Why like, like this
3: Unless, is- Well this this is actually a bigger trend for a lot of right wingers because uh Professor Bell uh, is one of the people who helped develop what is called critical race theory. Um and uh there is a lot of uh, it, it's a controversial framework for examining racism in the united states but there are a lot of people on uh, the the right side of the spectrum who are vehemently against this paradigm for examining racism and so anybody uh, who was kind of a proponent or a leading figure in it is uh,
0: often made to be a boogeyman um, well right and, and as a that's kind of as somebody who who really you know drew and i had never heard of Derek Bell before. We had never heard of this short story until we came across this. And so we were just doing some background research and stuff. And so as somebody who's, who completely doesn't have any background information to go on just as like a surface reaction, I thought, or they just, but it just seemed, it seemed interesting to me that they were digging this up and they were criticizing this story in particular um, when so many people hadn't even read it or heard of it it just seems like well that's a really good way to draw attention to it you know mm-hmm. like it seems like like kind of just this this racist paranoia of like oh we have to like people get there's certain groups of people I'm not trying to like point fingers you know because we all have our stuff but um, that get really offended when you point out racism exists and I do not understand that <laughs> and it's just something that and I think and so my, my gut reaction with like what little experience I have with with knowing about Breitbart and having no experience with the writings of or the theories of Derrick Bell I, I just my initial thought was oh I bet they were mad because they pointed out that racism is a huge problem and still a huge problem and that it informs all these decisions and because this story just goes there and I, I I'm going to have questions for those of you who read the story as someone who hasn't yet and I intend to but it's just you know, it's we've had a lot on our plates and actually just trying to even record this episode's been challenging because snowstorms and all kinds of just random chaos in life, you know, trying to podcast on the side and all that. But um, I just I, I I, wonder there's so many layers to what happens in the short story in the movie that I wonder how layered and nuanced the story is. I imagine quite a bit. There's just so much commentary. There's commentary on top of commentary and so many references to things that go on in our culture. And it was, I was just so impressed with that, with that aspect of this story. And um, one of the things I wanted to ask you Val was when was this written?
4: Oh, you know what? I don't actually know that. I, um, <laughs> I, I do
3: actually, It is. it was written cool. in 1992.
0: Um, the
4: oh short story my god
2: yeah
0: (laughs) okay cool because like there was a lot in there that felt really contemporary but i thought maybe it was adapted by whoever did the screenwriting and i have to say i could not find out who did the screenplay for this the credit information i mean imdb is kind of it's like wikipedia like Sometimes the pages and resources are really informative and good, and sometimes, depending on what the subject is, it's spotty. Mm. And the IMDB page for cast and crew information for this is kind of terrible. So what I did to try to find out like who directed what segment and who starred in each segment in any kind of normal fashion, I just went to the YouTube video and fast-forwarded to the credits and then just froze the credits and wrote down names and looked people up just individually, because the information for this, is, it's hard to find a lot of information about this program. And, and Andy, I think you were saying that, that even though HBO Max, you know, they have the streaming service now, and this is an HBO production, that this isn't available through HBO Max, which is terrible yeah i was
3: i was really disappointed because i was like oh it's an hbo thing maybe you know my roommate has access to a subscription maybe i can watch it in high definition maybe it's been remastered or something it's just not right
0: yeah um i I think that i think there's dvds of this but i'm not sure if they're bootleg or not like and i think there might be a vhs copy out there for like 50 bucks like trying to find this is is not great so as long as people keep putting it on YouTube, and I thought the quality of the YouTube upload was good. Yeah, it's 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 definitely not the worst thing I've
3: seen on YouTube.
0: I feel good about sharing it and saying, hey, watch this, because this isn't something you can go pay for someplace that's going to give money to the people who created it. Mm -hmm. Um, And also the quality is good.
1: The only thing I could ever find was that there was a VHS release, and that's actually on um, the IMDb, their photo for cosmic slop is the VHS box cover, hmm. and it's to date it. It's a magic eye.
0: Yeah, yeah, I yeah, exactly. Box cover. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been able to do those things, and I immediately had like a rats moment of like stare the staring it was that ethan Soupley is always staring at the boat it's
1: a schooner (laughs) why can't i see the sail
0: i i don't know i have a a slight stigmatism in one eye and i think that affects it i but i saw the cover and i just immediately had 90s flashbacks for this
1: yeah the cover says from the creators of house party and boomerang yeah A multicultural (laughs) twilight zone
0: it does have a very twilight zone feel to it it also kind of um reminds me just because of the production value and because it's HBO um, and some of the title screens that remind me a little bit of tales from the crypt in just the production this isn't a gory or um, I mean it's definitely dark but it's not it's not it's horrific but I wouldn't classify it as straight horror necessarily although there was definitely horrific moments throughout
4: but um so let's oh, let's get yeah, so Oh, sorry. But yeah, just to give like a, a very quick overview of the plot. Um, yes. The, the story and the, and the segment are about um, aliens have contacted Earth and they are coming to the United States specifically. And, and so a bunch of journalists and people are waiting at Plymouth Rock and the aliens arrive and send a an envoy who offers the American government and in the TV segment, this is represented by the, the vice president of the current administration. Um, they offer to solve all of the material problems that the United States currently suffers, which is pollution, poverty, um, finite resources because of dependent on fossil fuels. Uh, they offer to take all of these things away in exchange for all of the black people in the United States. All of them. Mm-hmm. And well, of it's... a
0: certain, of it, yeah, they, they, they ask, they, the request is posed as like a certain percentage of melanin. So they have to calculate
4: that to figure out what the aliens mean.
0: Mm-hmm. It is
4: essentially the um, alien version of the one drop rule. Yeah. Um, so obviously that is commentary with a big capital C. Um, and so the plot of the, of the whole segment is the United States administration, which is all white people except for one Black Republican, like, higher up, who is, um, he's also, like, a college professor. Yeah. Uh, so he is professor the one Black Lately. member. Yeah, he's the one Black member of this administration. And the um, the short story is is mostly about, like, his experience in the, like, during the days that lead up to um, the decision. And so it's about various, like, literally the the discussion over whether or not this is a reasonable thing and it right in in the in the segment never once does anyone like at one point at the very beginning of like a heads of state like uh like meeting at the beginning of the segment the person who is the president at the time is like but this is a joke right and that's the only time anyone is ever like well, obviously we can't do this Yeah. at no other point. Does anyone ever say this? Like, no, in no way is this all right. In no way is this like a reasonable thing to even consider what does happen almost immediately is a justification of all of the things that would be improved if we were to go through with this trade. Um, and then what's even worse and what is like an important commentary to think about as we look at specifically like how police <laughs> violence against black people is framed. It's the, uh, the dichotomy of whether or not the person who has been brutalized by the police in some way deserved it or not. So one of the justifications that the white people who don't think we should trade away all of the black Americans, is like, well, think about how much they contribute to society, and literally the only thing they can come up with is entertainment. Yeah, and yeah it's which never... says a lot. Which says a lot, and so we see a lot of this paralleled in like, how the news reports, like, was someone a pillar of their community? Was someone on their way to college? Or, you know, was someone not a valuable member of society? Yeah. And that sort of dichotomy about you have to be an actively enriching part of society in order to warrant your place in society. And this is just that on like a huge cosmic scale. And that is a thread throughout the entire segment. Mm-hmm. Um, the other main point that's really prominent in the short story and less so in the the TV segment. And I think just because like, it's a nuance that I think would be hard to illustrate in a short amount of time is the comfort that um, Professor Golightly has because of his proximity to whiteness.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
4: and the proximity to whiteness is this, um, this important concept to think of when you think of how power is distributed and how power is discussed. Because he is a member of a Republican cabinet. He is wealthy, he is educated. And so he assumes that when The administration is discussing who gets traded to aliens that he won't be included because he's not like other black people. You know, he's not one of the things that that is discussed in, you know, the quote unquote problems that would be solved by trading away this population of the United States is, you know, welfare roles would be reduced. We wouldn't need as much Medicare or Medicaid food stamp costs, like social welfare programs would essentially mm-hmm. be cut. Um, and he doesn't, he's not a person who relies on any of those things. So when we are conceptualizing who, who would be traded away, Professor Golightly does not see himself as that group. And that comes up a lot in the short story about his, position of comfort and protection and what that actually means um and the ending i will say spoiler the ending for the short story is different than the ending for the segment oh. um i was wondering and about i don't know that. yeah do you guys want me to tell you how it ends yeah go for uh, it yeah yeah okay. i mean i still want to read so, it but yeah i, I would yeah. like to know um I mean, you know, there's. <laughs> it's I guess really the spoiler, audience like, we... can't
0: weigh in on that, so I guess. Um,
4: well,
1: I already yeah, told them like I mean, five times I really need to watch this. You did say
0: spoilers <laughs> for the short story, though. Right. So I guess if you don't want that spoiled, go go yeah. read the short story <laughs> and you can come back. So to much us. homework in this episode. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Or you can just listen and and go check it out afterwards, which is what I'm gonna do. Yeah. Um,
4: so at the end of the short story. It has been decided that the that yes, we will trade away all of the black Americans and that the government will make an exception for you know, a certain number of prominent black families or individuals. And this is also presented in the TV segment where um, the government's like, you, to Professor Go Lightly. He's they're like, you can pick a hundred black families to be ex- the exception. And then we will send them to, I think they say England, yeah. for the sure. TV yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think in the short story, it's um, they'll let them pass the border into Canada because all of these discussions are happening in the Washington, D.C. area, so it wouldn't have been that far of a journey um, yeah. to get to the eastern half of Canada. And so it becomes apparent to the professor in the story that – you know, his family obviously should be spared. His life should be spared. And so he packs up his stuff and he's getting ready to go to the border to Canada. And the last thing that happens in the story is that the, um, the National Guard and the Border Patrol collect him. So he's not collected by the space traders. He's collected by the government administration that he works for
2: mm-hmm.
4: at the border. Um, and so the parable... <laughs> In the short story, is that he he spends the entire um, the entire uh, time period assuming that he is protected because of his affiliation with whiteness, and then he's not at all. And he does get taken to the collection centers and zapped up onto the spaceship in the TV show, but it's it's way darker in the story. It hurts so much more to read that than it was to like, you know, watch what happened. Cause there was like some sort of weird, like, like sexual anxiety because, um, professor Golightly's wife in the, in the TV segment, she's mm-hmm. light skinned. And mm-hmm. so she's not quote unquote dark enough to be collected. And it, there's like a member of the cabinet who seems to be like, like sexually fetishizing her. That's yeah. the vibe I got from him. Definitely. And so he's like, you're not going and then the rest of the family gets sent to the collection center and then it ends on professor Golightly getting absorbed up into the uh like the beam, mm-hmm. but it's like, wait, it's so much more sinister when God, it's so much more sinister in, in the short story because it is, it is the people he worked with literally collecting him at the border. And he had no reason to think that they w- would do that. Mm-hmm. It's, Super ugly, especially um, so Andy said that this was published in 1992, especially when you think about like the framework of the United States at that time. That's when the Los Angeles demonstrations against the police brutality of Rodney King were happening. So it's Mm -hmm. like we're seeing, you know, on on cable, on the news, the 24 hour news cycle for the first time, we're seeing mass demonstrations of the disparity between the state with a capital S which are predominantly white people in a position of power and black people who are oppressed by the state. And we're seeing that in this, in this short story too.
5: Yeah.
4: And that's well, why the conservative news media think it's propaganda. Yeah. I guess, I guess the truth hurts.
0: I do I <laughs> yeah, mean, it's a like, I, I think the thing that struck me so hard about this first story was how very true it still is in 2021 because we're watching this um you know we saw this less than a month after the the riots on the capitol and there were people wearing shirts that said camp auschwitz on them and they were allowed to walk out of the capitol building without being arrested on site or shot and people died and it's really hard to reconcile that you know like how is this happening um when you know a young a young kid can't just walk home safely without having someone call the police on them and be shot or tased to death or stepped on beaten you know it's just it's it really it really hits home i think for me the thing we you know when I you know, I don't I'm not trying to scare people off, but the reason why I was like, This isn't gonna be like a fun romp of a story. This isn't gonna be like a um take your mind off the current situation. This is putting you right in the thick of it, this particular story in general, because um I think while I was watching this, I just kept thinking about Nazi Germany. And then I was like, But this is here and this is how it is here mm-hmm. and it's not an exact mirror of Nazi Germany, but there's so many parallels in this story. And, you know, the, the, we'll, we'll smuggle a hundred of the, the quote unquote best black people, whatever the hell that means, whoever the white people deem valuable, whoever has the most money and influence, um, we'll smuggle them out of the country. That just made me think of like Schindler's list. You know? And then, um, and there's even a comment in this. Um, there's a news Blurb in the midst of the story where a newscaster says Germany wants to send their black population also, and the aliens <laughs> say maybe next time.
2: You God know. damn it!
0: That yeah, and and then when they and at the end when the family thinks they're getting smuggled to sanctuary and they um, tear everybody apart and shove them into the limo, you know, I immediately think of train cars and families getting divided up based on who has Jewish heritage or who they think has Jewish heritage. And it's just, it's like, we we're not learning our lessons. And granted, this is a fictitious story. But if aliens came tomorrow and made this offer, you know, I mean, I just look at like our most recent election, and I look at um, how many people just were willing to choose. And I'm not saying that the current president that we have is going to fix things or anything. I have Actually, like I don't want to get super into the political weeds, but I just don't really have a lot of faith in the Democrat establishment either. But it just seemed like there were a, there's a large enough of population of our country that's willing to just constantly put their own comfort and their own self interests over what's going to be good for all of us or even really themselves because they buy into lies and deceptions and they buy into this idea of otherness and superiority and and they're even you know willing to trade their children's future as far as the decisions they're willing to make because they want to stay in power or comfortable and and a lot of the power that people think they have is really kind of an illusion anyway you know especially if you're if you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, but mm-hmm. everybody's divided up and pitted against each other and I just I just felt like this was this was believable to me, especially the idea that like, oh, well we screwed up our environment and we, you know, have a fuel shortage and rather than actually do the work to save the resources and change our behavior and actually clean up our own mess. You do the easy thing, you take the easy way out and you just, you know, blame it all on one, one portion of the population and say, well, if we get rid of them and then nobody knows what's going to happen to these people, they're like, oh, maybe it's better. Maybe it's not. I also think immediately in my head, I go to that Twilight Zone episode called To Serve Man. And if you've seen that episode, you know what I mean? And I'm like, what's going to happen to these people when they get on the spaceship? Was it a test? is this a predatory race? Are they going to come back in 30, 40, 50 years when the Americans are still still polluting at the level they're polluting and they haven't changed any of their behavior, there's been no growth, and they're in the muck and mire again, environmentally and economically and technologically, and they need another bailout. Are they going to come and ask for another part of the population? Because I feel like that is what this story kind of implies like yeah. we're not learning the lesson this is just going to keep happening you know it's like that classic um quote about you know first they came for the jews and i didn't speak up for the jews mm-hmm. you know it's... so so this really like this really struck a deep chord at least for me and and um you know you're talking about the proximity to whiteness well the paper bag test which is a real thing um kept getting brought up Within this story, you know, uh, we have our main character, Professor Golightly, and then his wife, Gail. She's, you know, as Val mentioned, she's really light skinned, and so there, she's out. We see her throughout all of this, trying to tan and trying to darken herself because she knows that there's this.
1: Right. Because she's gonna be separated. Yeah, and, yeah. She's, and she'd rather be with them, because at first it's she like she's family she comes back from the store with skin lightener
0: but the, nobody yeah, wants
2: <laughs>
1: right but nobody wants the skin lightener and so then she's trying to get herself darker so that she can go with them she and, doesn't know where they're going no one knows where they're going that's not discussed the space traders
2: don't right.
1: actually before we get for I just want to bring up the fact that the space traders when they first show up and they have their representative which blips in and out, so you kind of can, for half a millisecond, see what they actually look like. But they change their appearance to be Ronald Reagan. Um,
4: that made me in, laugh so hard. Yeah.
1: In
0: the of <laughs> Max Headroom, which is something you see in the second Back to the Future movie, but, like, the head is, like, doing the Max right. Headroom kind of, like, and so, animation.
1: And the guy that plays the part of the alien uh, negotiator, he plays Ronald Reagan in every single. He's only in like seven roles throughout his his acting history. Always as Ronald Reagan. <laughs> so he's like an, a Ronald Reagan lookalike guy, who got a bunch of roles in movies anytime they needed a Ronald Reagan.
0: Wait, was he in Back to the Future too? Yeah. As that. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome.
1: Every time you're watching a movie and you're like, Wow, that guy looks a lot like Ronald Reagan. It's that guy.
0: It's <laughs> him. Oh, man. And there's there's a lot of like really like kind of darkly funny cultural references about just the the time place and with the, which this happens to because like they they decide to bring this decision on do we do we make this trade with the aliens to a vote and the vote is going to be by phone and it's hosted by mci which you know if you're old enough to remember mci is a phone company you know doing 1 <laughs> 900 numbers and stuff so they set up voting lines so everybody can take out their touch tone phone and vote there's no verification for like how many votes people get or if people are registered or anything like that it's just pick up your touch tone phone and vote like one for yes or two for no kind of a scenario also
1: when they we're kind of jumping around, but um, when they get down to when they're voting and they're, like, showing all the people casting votes, pretty much other than the Go Lightly family, everyone you see voting is all white people. Yeah. <laughs> and they show the president voting, and as the president's voting, and because it's, like, two different numbers you can call – he has a ser- a black servant behind him, like looking over his shoulder. Yeah. And so like he goes and he hides his phone to dial from <laughs> his servant. Yeah. And it's like, where's the servant's phone?
0: Yeah. That's what he asked. yeah. Where's his phone? Why is he not voting? And, and As the
1: time before cell phones when like, you know, it's a landline and you know, there's one landline per household and, yada 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 some people don't have a landline even and anyways
0: and it brings up a really interesting comment because they have you know throughout this there becomes this campaign you know vote no and um uh professor go lightly it decides to go basically he first he tries to like rally all these local activist groups and try to get everybody to come together and then he decides that he needs to reach out to the people who would lose money
1: the most.
4: I loved that scene. It is. It's incredible.
1: A (laughs) lot of, there's so many different layers of commentary. So (laughs) many. Um, It's just
4: like, it's a cabal of capitalists and, Professor Golightly literally says they're capitalists first and whites second. <laughs> and and yeah. it's like, if that ain't the truest effing thing I've ever heard said. <laughs>
0: don't the, oil, the Oil company is upset because, well, if we, you know, have renewable energy, then we're out billions of dollars, which mm-hmm. is something the oil company thinks every day. <laughs> yeah. I,
3: I, I really liked, I don't think it was in the scene with the capitalists, but I think, it may have been or it may have been with the, the, the first scene with, like, all the chiefs of staff and important government people. But one person mentions, like, well, if we get rid of all the black people, how long is it going to be before poor white people understand that they're on the bottom rung of the ladder now? Right. It's <laughs> like, oh, the
4: capitalist. Yeah. I wrote that down. It's how long will poor whites stand being at the very bottom of the barrel? Which is honestly, like, again, not to get too political but that is how the 2016 election happened mm-hmm. oh yeah and how a good it, how yeah how, how long yeah. will poor white people stand to continue to be disenfranchised if they feel like people of color specifically black people are being uplifted over them
2: mm-hmm.
0: and on honestly okay just real quick and i, I promise i won't get on a soapbox for too, too long but i think i mean that's that fuels anti anti-immigrant beliefs as well because you know People are told, "Oh, you're losing your jobs to all these these undocumented workers coming in from Mexico," and it's like you're losing your jobs because these employers don't want to pay taxes and benefits. That's who you should get mad at. It's like just you know, I'm just putting that out there. Mm-hmm. But you play the race card and you 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 play on these already you know the already human nature is very tribal and into us and them like that's a very ingrained mentality from like when you're just in survival survival mode all the time and so that's played up and that fear is stoked and then it's easy to divide everybody and it's easy to keep you know a billionaire class thriving while everybody else has trouble just making basic ends meet and then they're kind of told well you know if you're poor that's because you're bad Mm -hmm. so it's. Didn't it's try just, hard enough. Sorry. Right, right. It's not that you know there's a whole system in place that's rigged against you, but um, but anyway, so so one of the things I wanted to comment on though, as far as election-wise, they start building this momentum because they get all these capitalists involved, and they're like, no, this would be a very bad thing. We're against this. Right. Which gets funding which, for marketing, and they have Casey Kasem cameos himself hosting.
1: If it wasn't for the fact that there's a lot of, um people of color that were like involved in making this mm-hmm. there's a lot of scenes that would be really uncomfortable because like they in the capitalism scene like they're talking about like you know the cigarette sales and the cognac oh, sales so, yes,
0: sir. the liquor and all and, these yeah. things
1: that are like the, the black consumers that you'll lose you're gonna, you know, lose out on all this money,
0: and who will play the sports, and who will entertain us, you know? And right, blah, and blah, then blah, blah, the blah. other one yeah. that they
1: do is they have Casey Kasem, because <laughs> like, once they get the capitalists on board, the capitalists spend all their money trying to convince everybody not to send away the black people. hmm Um, so like they're doing all these ad campaigns, and it's really because there's like, they're going around just in the streets handing out like, menthol, cigarettes, and cognac, mm-hmm. and then, um, yeah, and then they have the scene with Casey Kasem where they're doing a whole showcase, and it's like, Casey Kasem, America's Top surgeon <laughs> you know, yeah. is, like, telling you about, like, all oh, the great black people that we have, and yeah. it's just, like, Michael, um, Magic Johnson, There's a
0: big picture of giant Magic Jackson Johnson, Johnson the and they
1: have, like, a, they have... I mean, they're intending it to be Michael uh, Jackson, but there's, like, a Michael Jackson impersonator comes out on stage and, like, does the moonwalk.
4: Right.
0: Well, and it's like what Val was saying. It's, it's just, like, we have to sell the idea of the value of these people onto, you know, the white people in power. Like, you have to see their their value so that you'll do the humane and right thing, which is not send a bunch of people to what who knows what kind of fate in order to have a quick band-aid to solve all of the world's problems and so but the thing the thing that I was trying to get back to you was that they're building all this momentum and they start to get excited because they're like oh the polls the polls you know it looks like things are going in our favor but everybody's voting on their phone and the privacy of their own home like the president who doesn't want his you know butler to see over his shoulder because he knows how he's voting and he doesn't he and he knows it's it's immoral and wrong, but he's going to do it because it's in his self-interest. And so I think that's really – it says a lot about – like people always go, oh, well, the polls said this and that, and then here's what happened. And it's like, well, you you need to understand human nature better if you're being shocked and awed by what the actual election numbers look like every year. So it was just really – it's just really interesting. I just felt like there was so much um, – so much commentary that just was so spot on and accurate. And it was, and, and, and there's a really great line that comes from professor Golightly in this, where he says the people without power must use cunning and guile. And he goes again to the activist groups and he tries to like appeal to them. He says, you know what we need to do is we need to convince the white people that it's going to be so great in space and that we're getting this thing that they can't have. (laughs) And then they'll take it away from us. And he's absolutely right. There's just, there's um there's just a lot of I just I can't say enough like this is this is a really great segment I'm gonna read the story I'm excited to read the story and I think
1: the depressing story and I
0: think that maybe I think maybe there's just too much reality in this for people and that that's why this hasn't been elevated to higher status as a great piece of speculative fiction and why this isn't something that's more readily available for people to watch. Well, I, I,
3: I, I, I also think it's just people not believing the perspective, because if you read um, specifically African-American literature, um, you know, but also a lot of other uh, minority group literature, they've been saying the same things for basically as long as they've been writing this stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I, have, I have a book of collected stories from various um, black authors from the 60s. Uh, there's that show I mentioned the boondocks there and all of these things in one way or another are saying a lot of the same things. I think it's just that, um, people in a position of privilege that don't have to deal with the everyday realities like this think that it's not reality that oh, it's fantastic. Oh, that's not really happening. Oh, it's being overblown. Um, but it's, it has been consistent for a long time, um, which is, uh, both funny and terribly, terribly tragic.
0: It's um, very sad. Yeah. yeah. And I, I do get it. I get what you're, that's a really good point, Andy, because I do get it. Like people who aren't, conf- who have the privilege to not have to deal with this reality don't want to, it's not even that they don't believe, it's they don't want to believe. I think on some level, a lot of people are like, yeah, that happens, but I'm just going to put that aside out of my mind because that, that doesn't feel good. And people, when they don't feel good, they immediately want to fix it and medicate against it and do whatever to insulate themselves from that discomfort and a lot of times the discomfort is just really trying to tell you something you know that little part that nagging part in the back of your brain you know it's trying to tell you something's broken something needs to be fixed it's not going to get fixed if you just live in denial about it and and I think that um, you know it's not like this is an exceptional piece out of other things but it just when I think about there's just this is a really nice piece of science fiction anthology that just it was so hard to find anything. I found a, a couple good articles and I'll link a blog that gave it some good coverage in our show notes. But, but yeah, just this, this subject matter. It's not this story specifically. It's the subject matter. That's just, it gets buried because a lot of people, they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to look at it. They don't want to feel it. And, and I don't know. I don't know what it's like, to experience racism i do i do know you know a little bit about you know dealing with some sexual discrimination and i and i just one of the things that popped into my head was I had this good friend back in college who he had a he had a friend who was very creepy and predatory towards women
2: mm-hmm. and
0: he'd always tell me oh no he's a good guy and like i would tell him all these stories and he's just like ah, oh, he's a good guy and i was like but he's not he's not a good guy to everybody he's specifically predatory mm-hmm. towards a lot of girls. If you're not a good guy to everybody, you're not a good guy. But my friend who's basically a kind-hearted person but just like did not want to like deal with the fact that his good buddy was a sexual predator. Mm-hmm. Like straight up. And I think that that's just that it's that mentality, you know, if you're you're not confronted with it, you know, you don't have to deal with it on a regular basis and and you don't want to think about the fact that Oh, yeah, like the police will do a no knock warrant and they'll just bust into people's homes and they have to live in fear and they they could get shot, you know,
2: mm-hmm. but the
0: life expectancy for a lot of black young people is different than it is for young white people, and that parents have to educate their kids on how to be safe from the police and from the you know their white neighbors. Like that's really tragic. And it's like that's a reality. that's and it's been a reality. For a really long time, you know, you have people, people hanging from trees and parks, you know, this last year, and they're saying, oh, it's a suicide. I'm like, really? <laughs> you think so? You think that's what that is? I don't think so. <laughs> it's just, we, you know, like, I I just think it's really important that, um, I think one of the great things about works of fiction is that it gives you the opportunity to step outside of yourself and see through someone else's eyes. And I think in order to like, get any kind of real progress and healing, we have to continuously be willing to do that. And I think that, you know, things like this illustrate why the arts are so valuable.
4: Yeah. And to sort of launch off of that, like just like on an optimistic note, the the genre that this cos like slop falls into afrofuturism is like it's it's a prominent genre that looks to the future of black people and sees them as more than just like because like i feel like in the united states there's this there's like two two schools of thought it's like there is pity for what happened to black people during the african diaspora the forced slave trade in migration because of white people and then there's indignation where it's like well you know the the classical like i didn't own slaves or like our grandparents didn't own slaves like whatever but what afrofuturism allows people to participate in allows black people to see a future where those things are not their only narrative. Those things are not the only parts of arts and culture and philosophy and science that they're allowed to have access to. Mm. And Afro, Afrofuturism isn't like a huge um, expanded genre in like visual media, but like one of the best examples of it is Black Panther, which I don't know mm. if anyone's ever seen Black, if any of you have seen Black Panther, but like that's an incredible Afrofuturistic, like it is, a, it is the potential of black people mm-hmm. When they aren't being either Subjugated or pitied Because white pity Also doesn't help anyone but Like no. it is Like afrofuturism and like it's You know uh like what we'll See in the next segment First commandment which is the kind of futurism Or futurism is the ability Of these groups that have been Marginalized to see A future with themselves in it A future beyond um like extinction, essentially, and so even though what we're discussing right now is incredibly fucking grim, I'm sorry, incredibly grim, um, it okay. is also like, sorry, yeah, I don't, I don't want to have to put like an explicit warning just because like I can't like stop swearing. And <laughs> okay, no, I think and I think I think an
0: occasional an occasional f bomb or whatever is
4: is totally fine and warranted. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's just, it is also like it is optimistic in a way that I think white people don't necessarily have to be because whenever we think of like the history that we're taught conventionally, it's the history of white people succeeding and living into the future, the preservation of whiteness and Afrofuturism is this amazing response in parallel to that, which is there is a future for blackness as well. And it is an exciting and prominent one. And And I, you know, I really like, I, that's one of the things that I, um, I took an Afrofuturism class in college. I was an English major, you know, cool. there's probably a drinking game you can form out of me mentioning that casually, like once a day, uh, <laughs> like i <I'm laughs> an, an English major, major yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, here's all the things I've read. Uh, but one of the things that I loved about it was just like, not everything has to be like deep and heady and, and like intellectual or, you know whatever like it doesn't it doesn't have to be so ideologically important to be valuable still i -hmm. guess that's like that's how that's how genre fiction is looked at in general is that oh well it's not like literature with a capital l so it's like it's not valuable but it's like it is valuable because it is representative art it is art that is you know, it doesn't have, not everything has to be super, super meaningful. We're lucky because this piece is, but also if it were frivolous, it would still be important. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, yeah. And so, you know, Derek Bell, prof- um, Professor Derek Bell received a lot of criticism for this and Cosmic Slop did not get recognition and the recognition it did get was generally unfavorable. Um, But like, I'm, I'm so glad that this was made and that we're able to still enjoy it now and i you know i hope that stuff like this continues to get made in the future and that we continue to like elevate other perspectives Mm -hmm. non-white perspectives
3: um i did want to say that i was uh, looking at the credits list apparently this segment was adapted by trey ellis who is a novelist and screenwriter and also a professor um and I, I believe right now he's an associate professor at Columbia um, but he's also written several plays and he's done a lot of essays uh, in, you know, the the major uh, newspaper publications things like that um, So some very smart people working to put this, this specific segment together uh, huh. Real
0: quick before we move on to the next segment, I thought maybe, um, I didn't want to go like crazy in depth to the cast because the cast for this is is extensive, mm-hmm. um, but I wanted to I wanted to mention that this segment was directed by Reginald Hudlin, who um, also directed House Party and Boomerang and lots of other things, um, lots of TV. I I won't like read the whole list, but again, it was kind of like had to dig to find information on people because the usual and it's just maybe that's lazy of me to rely on imdb too much but um it was hard to find uh all the information i was looking for on people but the two the two main characters that i kind of outlined that we spend the most time with are um uh you know the character of professor uh gleason go lightly was played by robert guillaume Mm-hmm. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I believe it's a French last name. And I recognized him immediately because as an 80s kid, um, he was on a television series called Benson. And I didn't really remember what the show was about, but I remember liking him. He's the main character. He plays Benson in it. And it's. Um, I did a little bit of digging. Apparently, that's a spinoff from a show called Soap that was on in the late 70s and early 80s. And... He was a character on that and then he kind of he got his own show and it's about a man who's a butler who like works his way up into the world of politics and like I said I don't remember much about the show but it was on a lot when I was a kid and I just remember liking his character like he he you know have like kind of some of the best lines in the show that kind of thing. And then his wife um, in this story Gail Golightly was played by Michelle Lamar Richards who um, was on the soap opera Bold and the Beautiful for quite a while. Um, and then also the television show Alien Nation, which would be you know of interest to our science fiction fans. And the thing I recognized her from was when I was in junior high, I went and saw The Bodyguard with um, my stepmother, your mother, Andy and Val. <laughs> I saw her, she plays Whitney Houston's sister in that. Um, hmm. But yeah, that's basically, I just wanted to mention, like there's so many other people in this. Um, but it was a really long cast list, and we try to not go on and on for hours. But you know, you can definitely, I recommend if you're interested, watch those credits because that's where all the info is for them. Well, not necessarily on all the writing, but on all, as far as who was acting and directing.
1: Yeah, IMDb dropped the ball on this one. But I mean, IMDb, from what I understand, a lot of it's like kind of user content. Yeah, I think it's too. similar to
0: Wikipedia the way that so... works.
1: So. Mm-hmm. People are just dropping the ball on this program in general, I guess, because it just, I mean, I've never heard of it, and trying to find information about it is so hard.
2: Yeah.
3: Oh, it's, yeah. this may be an opportunity for us to be the change we want to see in the world, so I guess we could, <laughs> one of us could go out there and make these edits. I, I, um, I doubt
0: that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really doubt that. But, you know, and, and this other thing is, like, you know, we're, we're discussing this from the perspective of, you know, for white middle class folks in the Pacific Northwest. And so, you know, take take our opinions and whatever with a grain of salt. But I just, I really think that it's worth your time. And I think I think this is something that deserves more discussion and attention. There you
1: go, and form your own opinion.
0: Right, right, yeah, see how you feel about it. Um, I, so are uh, we, any uh, final thoughts about this segment?
3: Yes, I also wanted to say that um, currently the short story, I was I was looking up where this was published and where you can find it. Um, It was most recently published in uh, an anthology, which looks actually kind of interesting, called Dark Matter, A Century of Speculative Fiction from the African Diaspora. Um, It is in volume one. Apparently, there's more than one of these. And uh, as of this recording, it is available in multiple formats on Amazon. And I'm sure, you know, other reputable booksellers have it as well. Um, So for you uh, sci-fi folks who like to... You know, who like the like print media, not. as well as the um, media of film and television. Uh, there is that for you. Which is a lot of us out there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it was Peter the other day that I saw a post about, uh, yes, I know I own too many books. No, I will not stop buying books. <laughs> yes, I admit that sometimes I will smell my books.
2: <laughs> Hi, Peter.
1: <laughs> and I was like reading all those things. I'm like, yep, 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 yes and yes. <laughs> we literally just bought I know we didn't buy books yesterday. I bought more records yesterday. Oh God.
0: <laughs> oh God, indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. With with um. With Speaking that, of God. Let's yeah. We'll get into a segment that talks about religion. It's the first commandment. And the first commandment. Before we get too into the story, uh, I was just gonna mention it was this one was directed by Warrington Hudlin, who worked also on house party and boomerang as a producer and various other television productions and things. But as far as like big, you know, mainstream, mainstream cinema that people would know about, those are the, those are the big names there. Things you might know him from. And so in this story, we have a young priest, I believe is it's, is it in the Bronx or is it in Harlem?
3: It's the I'm Bronx. I'm Bronx. pretty sure.
0: Um, a young priest from of uh, Puerto Rican descent is, uh, concerned because the like the diocese i'm not really sure on like the catholic hierarchy but basically the higher-ups the white higher-ups are like we want to take away this virgin statue from your your church because it has value and there's an art dealer who's interested in it um, Well, a
1: museum
0: museum yeah sure. a
1: museum in like downtown manhattan which wants to
0: Right away gets into a really interesting topic of, like, when you have pieces that are valuable to specific cultures and traditions, you know, I mean, who should own that? Who should that belong to the people? I think, you know, And people say, oh, we're preserving this by putting it in a museum and we're going to take it away from the people whose community this is a part of.
2: Mm-hmm. And it
0: kind of infers... I mean, you could take that and you could in, infer... This is a lot like when people... You know, white-centric museums go... And they take artifacts from different cultures... And house them in the museum as an act of preservation... But they're really taking them away from the people who they belonged to. You right. know? And so that's that's an ongoing discussion that needs to be had. And it's, it's one of the points of this story, I think. Um, so, basically... There's this whole. We open with this discussion, and and the discussion is, oh, well, there's going to be, you know, the sale of because they're purchasing it for the museum. They're not donating it to the museum. So oh, again, no, they're
1: they're donating to museum, but under the guise that the museum will be donating money to, yeah. So they're selling so it.
0: So they're donating it in in big air quotes. Um. Mm-hmm. So so basically, they're selling it, and uh, and, oh, and- Father Carlo. Yeah, and, and and the funds will
3: not be going to Father Carlos's church. They will just be going to no. the Catholic organization writ Large.
0: They are going into the coffers of of the the larger Catholic church body. And the cardinal who's kind of brokering the deal is is basically, you know, Father Carlos is asking questions and and the cardinal's like, you know, don't worry about it. Just tend to your tend to your flock that seems to be wayward because a lot of them are practicing Santeria. Um
1: which is the whole point of This uh, This this whole premise
0: And so what ends up happening Is during um, The taking of this statue That they refer to as a saint A lot of the times mm-hmm. But it's it looks like an incarnation of Mary And within the Catholic Church There are all these different incarnations of Mary Where she appeared at different sites Like you have the Virgin of Guadalupe You have the Lady of Lourdes um, You have Oh, gosh there's so many and I'm I'm kind of Blanking on some more names and I apologize I'm not a Catholic I'm not well versed in that Yeah this um, uh,
3: they refer to this statue specifically As the virgin of Charity so I don't know yeah. if that's that's an Actual thing or if that's a fiction thing but That's what they call this statue
0: I feel like that's A fictional A fictional but play On a thing that really exists like it, I feel like it's loosely based on You know <clears> but a lot of these times a lot of times What would happen at least from what I've read and my limited knowledge is you would have a sighting of the Virgin Mary in one of these holy sites. And a lot of times the holy site where the sighting takes place was traditionally a holy site for a previous culture. Like with the Virgin of Guadalupe, I believe there was a previous, um, and I and apologies because I do not know the name of the deity or the specific culture, but I remember reading that it was like, I think there was possibly an Aztec goddess that was associated with that region. Um, so, because I believe it was more northern, and the southern, further south, you get Mayan deities. I believe it was an Aztec goddess. But so there's just this like tradition, and and also you know you have in Northern Europe, which I tend to know a little bit more about, you have all these sacred wells and sites of like Ireland and England, and you had different. Goddesses that were associated by, you know, Celtic and pre-Christian peoples all over that are associated with certain regions or certain um, aspects of the land or, you know, certain elements of the weather or seasons. And then you would have, um, you know, once Christianity came in and dominated, then you have these, they sort of just put the Virgin Mary on top of those. And it's like, oh, it's the Mary of blah, 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 Mm. or whatever. You know, or you have saints, like saints get, you know, like you have the goddess Bridget becomes Saint Bridget. And so there's just this sort of appropriation of these deities and turning them into a pantheon of saints or an aspect of the Virgin Mary as a way to kind of recruit and bring all these people into this blanket of Catholicism, mostly. You know, that's the main religion that did this, Mm. as far as I know. Not being a theologist, Um, and so this is the theme of this story: is while basically the the uh, priest Father Carlos has to go back and answer to his community for like their statue was taken away, Um, and so now the the church has this empty space with kind of like a shadow around it of where she was, and during the transaction, the statue goes missing. And um, the local...
1: Goes missing from the back of a moving truck. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And while this is all going on, um, Father Carlos is having these ongoing dialogues with a local community figure, the local Padrino who runs the Botanica and is part of the Santeria community. And he's just saying, well, you know, what about our community? What about what this means to them? And they identify her as you know an older an older deity they identify her as this orisha and they so the community has this like multi-level relationship but it's not sanctioned by the catholic church because it comes from a root of a pagan way of thinking and so they have this whole you know back and forth and kind of like a little the the Father Carlos character finds himself caught between two worlds and the Padrino is like, remember your heritage, remember where you came from and remember the real names of, of that, which we pray to. And so I actually found this story to be by a mile, the most optimistic of the story segments, because it has the statue basically transforms into a real living, breathing being. And she stays within the community and she shows herself to the members of the community and she creates miracles and healing and creates an atmosphere of peace. And the Catholic church catches wind of it. And of course they are not okay with it. Um, But they're not really
1: assume it's a crazy person going around claiming to be the saint you know
0: they're not really able to do anything about it and
1: i don't remember the line exactly but there's like a point when the the irish i forget is he cardinal is he, hey,
3: he he's, he's the cardinal. archdiocese i believe yeah yeah so the he comes
4: i see the oh, collective so th- th- that it. would make him
3: an archdeacon
4: so he's a cardinal he's wearing a red cap
1: oh okay so yeah, Cardinal and so like he <laughs> he comes to the site where all the like the miracles are happening and um the the guy that's like the leader of the Santeria is there by his side and he's like Who is this guy? Why is he here anyways? And he says like he's like he's like, you know, bring them out of here. He's like, Well what if it is miracles? Yeah. And like he like laughs at it, you know, and it's like you're you're the guy that's supposed to be the one that's like, all these miracles are possible. Right. And it's like, if it's a miracle, <laughs> then why wouldn't you create a new saint of, you know, the Bronx? Yeah. The yeah. saint of the Bronx. It would be awesome. Um, but he's like, yeah, right. Miracle, miracle.
0: <laughs> and the person you, you would think you would want to believe in miracles the most should be the higher ups.
4: But they're just career politicians, really. Yeah. It's- yeah. I, so I, and the part that Drew's talking about, oh sorry, um the part that Drew's talking about actually really resonated with me too. And the cardinal says something to Father Carlos along the lines of sometimes we must look away from miracles to keep our eyes on God.
2: <laughs> Which right. is
4: literally what he says. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. It's so, like and
4: it's like oh, wasn't, okay. A
1: oh Yeah, I just it, Yeah, because he was saying that like those miracles are there. To try to distract you, you know,
4: to tempt you. <laughs> yeah, like a,
3: like
1: the last temptation. He says.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, the the thing I really liked about this is before this happens, she sets up shop in a crack house, and I just like the, um, I guess the not symbolism. It's it's more overt than symbolism, but I just like the idea that a modern day saint would like, you know, go and cleanse out a crack house and start blessing people and just you know kind of take one of the lowest parts of a community and make sure. it their seat for a little while.
1: That's where they should be. Yeah.
3: Well,
0: exactly. Yeah, and and it, and it also sends a powerful message because I think, um, especially with Catholicism, I'm not trying to bash on the faith of Catholicism, but there's a history with a lot of really structured um, Christianity where there is this hierarchy and there are these levels of power, and they're often mostly held by white men. And they, you know, I'm not going to scream, hex the patriarchy, but I do think that sometimes. <laughs> um, they, they're basically creating this power structure where it's like, in order to connect with God, you have to go through me. And as we've come to see over the decades, a lot of times those men in power are really corrupt. Some of them have sexually abused children. Some of them have taken wealth for their own gain. You know, it hasn't been at the benefit of the people. And so to have, you know, the the saint of charity, the the virgin of charity, this incarnation of a mother deity directly interact with the most poor and downtrodden people in the neighborhood. It's like this powerful message of you don't need this hierarchy. They're they're irrelevant. It's direct contact with the divine Mm -hmm. and direct. Healing from the divine—that you don't have to pay a tithing to a big institution and kiss the ring of the archdiocese and and go through all this political BS—that is not the path to God. The path to God is the much more direct experience, which I think um, I think that's part of the appeal of a lot of um, a lot of these older faith-based systems where you have you know maybe a pantheon and i don't necessarily know that much about Santeria, but i just think i think that there's faiths in this in this nature and pagan pagan practices often involve people having a direct encounter with the divine whatever that is you know without trying to like um i'm not going to put labels on it or box it in but i think that's the appeal it's like it takes away that power structure it creates a much more intimate experience which you know as a human being especially when you know you have like elemental based things around you that are these are the forces you contend with with the seasons and movements of nature and things like your immediate experience with the world is a very personal one you don't have a bunch of priests telling you how to deal with um, the changing of the seasons or an earthquake or a tidal wave. You know, you, it, it's a very direct experience. And so I think it's interesting that this reflection on this faith is, you know, the people practicing the Santeria and we see these scenes, and I don't know how accurate they are because it's just not my realm of experience, but they're, they're moving, they're feeling it in their own bodies. And we see at the end of the story when people come to the church to take communion um, this is after the father has had a direct experience with right. the Virgin of Charity, and she says to him, basically, "Call me by my real name," and she's like, "You know me as Ocean, which is an Arisha. That's um, sort of, you know, what they were having. They were taking the Virgin of Charity and trying to make her this equivalent." to this Orisha who is a goddess of many things, but like fertility and wealth and, um, and again, Um, really limited on my knowledge here, but I did a little bit of digging. And so we see her in her Orisha form where she transforms into like a completely different person with completely different dress. And then she reappears again at the church during communion and the, the parishioners come up to receive communion and they start moving and dancing and convulsing like they would during a ceremony and it's it's just really interesting. It's like I feel like it sends this really powerful message that like these things will rise to the surface again, that they cannot be suppressed. And I I found that really comforting. And if I Well it really- and it's
1: it's a lot of um where people did lose their different religions to being covered up and being forced to practice a religion that wasn't theirs. Um, Those people, they kept practicing their original religion Mm -hmm. just under the guise of a new religion. And so that's kind of where this is coming from, where it's like that religion's still there, and so now it's just forcing its way back in. You took away... Basically, they took away the uh, fake art covering up what they were actually praying to. And when they took it away, what they were actually praying to came in full force.
0: And I think it's also really powerful, especially within like the context of like, you know, this greater anthology is that here's a story of another struggle. That's often very race-based where you have religious institutions going in and colonizing areas and, forcing a different faith onto people and sort of whitewashing and stripping these people of their their cultural and spiritual identities in a way that's very violent and I think personally very harmful and it's really you feel kind of victorious watching this, seeing seeing this, um, this community and this culture and this faith rise up, back up to the surface despite the efforts of the Catholic church in this case um, so I just I, I mean it's it ends on maybe that's a, a strange note I could see some people watching this and being like oh this is weird you know but I actually took it as really moving and really um, really positive I thought it was a very hopeful optimistic note
4: it's like I, a happy ending
0: yeah, yeah. I
3: wasn't sure Have, what to make of the ending because I didn't understand the significance of the dancing in Santeria so I was kind of perplexed at the end. Um, And I know the episode throughout is intercut with people, uh, I'm assuming practitioners of Santeria, um, Mm -hmm. you know, dancing, um, which again, I'm assuming is some sort of act of worship. But I didn't understand uh, why some of the people in this, uh, you know, in this church service started dancing and others didn't. It kind
1: of all of that went over my head. I think it was the people that were practicing catholicism truly catholicism were not being touched by this deity whereas the people that were practicing the whatever form of santeria or whatever they were practicing but were praying to the other god that's the ones that got touched you know
0: well I, as a as an outsider to both of the faiths represented in this story from an outsider perspective it looked to me like um Communion, the idea of communion is to connect with the divine. And so you have this uh, Catholic tradition of communion where you have the wafer and the priest gives you the wafer and the wine and you have this whole ceremony. And then you have this, what I'm guessing is like a Santeria form of communion. These people are filled with spirit, whatever that means to them. And so you see the juxtaposition of the Catholic communion and the Santeria communion like happening in the same place at the same time it's just like that like the point is the connection that the names that we apply are more about our own need for power and need to control and like I believe I wrote this down I did not write down when it is said but I believe at the beginning of the segment when we have we're treated to George Clinton as like a floating head like kind of this awesome like space guru type head where he's got like a third eye. third eye yeah And I believe he says at the beginning of this, if you can, if you name a thing, you can claim a thing, which is this very human idea that we, you know, there's so much um, in both like esoteric, like magic circles and just in society in general, of like the idea of naming things being important. Like we want to name, we want to label, we want to, that is how we frame our understanding. That's part of language. And so a lot of times as a way to take control you dominate another culture, then you change the name of things, but they're still the same things, and um, and it's just really an arbitrary act to make you feel like you're in control. And so I think I think there was a really interesting message with that in here.
4: And the the observation I made in that final scene when Father Carlos is um, passing out the communion wafer is that um, the only people who aren't Reacting are the white people and the mm-hmm. people of the African diaspora are the ones who are experiencing this this other type of communion. Um, Felt like I might have seen I thought a
1: couple of white people, but maybe not. I don't I, remember
3: exactly. Like
4: a blonde woman receiving communion and then just like being stone faced. So like that that was the thing that, white, that resonated I, with me.
3: I thought it was only some of the the um, the black folks or the, the Latino folks that were getting it because I was pretty sure there was somebody with like darker skin that took communion and just kind of, you know, marched off uh, and didn't start dancing well,
0: as this well. Was, this is one of those classic examples. And also we, we watched this in preparation to record actually a week before we were actually recording because of a massive snowstorm and power outages and stuff. So like, I think a lot of us are dealing with like, we saw this like a week ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but there's that classic, like, everybody saw a little bit of a different thing. Like, when you do, like, witness, recall, like, for tes- testimony and stuff, everybody's seen a different thing. Cause for me, I thought that it started off gradually, that you had people coming in and taking communion, and nothing was happening at first. And then right. a woman starts to dance and gyrate and move. And, All like, right. and then more, more and more people. And then some men, you know, I just kind of thought that, like it kept happening more and more. Like it started to ramp up. I wasn't really necessarily paying attention to like, if it was was... certain types of people, but I definitely felt like it was increasing. Like, and then the, and the, the priest is watching this happen. Like, Oh, like she's affirming her presence within, and, and probably it would only affect a, a portion of, of the local church, but, but it seemed like it was increasing more and more and more to kind of like show this acceleration of like, this is, this is here. This is part of the community. It can't be suppressed.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You have to own it and understand it and acknowledge it and respect it.
4: Have any of you seen Lemonade or listened to Lemonade by Beyonce? No, No. I haven't. So Lemonade is a truly incredible, it's an hour long visual album. It came out in like 2012, I think. Um, And it is a piece of like, Afrofuturist feminist um, media, and Beyonce identifies with and appears as um, the God, the Yoruba goddess Ocean, multiple times um, in that in that visual album. Oh, cool. and, and yeah, and so like she she's a really cool figure that talks about like the the connection between because like Beyonce is um, she's Christian and religion is really important to her, but she's also worked really hard um, for the past like decade or so of her career to present, like be proudly black. And she um, that's presented a lot in her most recent documentary that came out in 2012 or 2020 called uh, black is king, which Mm -hmm. is on Disney plus. She talks about what it means to be a black woman and what it means to be part of this forced diaspora. And santeria comes from africa originally from west africa it's a Yoruban practice and then you see it move through cuba which is where it becomes part of like the afro-latino culture and then also you see it in like the south still like in louisiana where mm-hmm. beyonce um like because beyonce's from houston i'm pretty sure and then i think she lived in um louisiana yeah. at some point but you you see a lot of this Still both in Latino communities, which is what we're seeing in this segment in the South Bronx, but also in black communities and the overlap of um, the presence of this practice in those as like as as part of the response to forced migration and also the response to forced conversion. The lemonade's really cool. I don't. Yeah, I feel like people don't talk about it enough. (laughs) Everyone wants to talk about homecoming now. I yeah I
0: I'll have to check that out. That sounds really interesting. I like the idea that it's like this whole art piece, like a whole. I love I the idea of like concept albums. So that's that sounds really cool.
4: So when I, it came out, the main press about it was like Beyonce's, like her personal life, like her marriage and um, the rumors of infidelity in her marriage and stuff like that. And so on its face, it's about the resilience of like black womanhood in the face of infidelity, but it's also, it's mostly a love letter, um, to the power of like the sensual powerful feminine with like a capital F. Cool. Yeah.
0: I have to say that my, my, and this is embarrassing to admit my, a lot of my exposure to, um, any kind of art regarding Afrofuturism has to do with Tumblr because, um, a few years back, I, Will, like promote my art and stuff on Tumblr. And I got into checking out the idea of solar punk, which like took steampunk and turned it into, instead of like having like a kind of old timey perspective of the future, it kind of took elements of like art nouveau and then also green technology to like
1: right. create these
0: imaginary worlds. Cause where... somebody
1: tagged one of your pieces as solar punk. Right. right. And
0: I just thought the concept was so cool. And then solar punk, the solar punk movement heavily ties in and integrates with um, afrofuturism as an artistic style is just and and this is mostly just things i'm seeing paintings people are doing like a lot of digital and physical art where they're envisioning sort of this um this better future where we've figured all of these things out you know and and it's just there's some really beautiful art if you're somebody who uses tumblr or you want to make fun of me for that that's cool like it's a nice visual medium and Um, It was one of the few social media apps that didn't degrade my photos when I was sharing my work on them because other things like Facebook totally do. But there, if you want to like, just get like a quick visual reference, that's kind of a good place to look under that hashtag of Afrofuturism to see some just really gorgeous art that people are making to celebrate this vision. Um, But then, you know, again, that's my limited experience with
1: it. I think before we end with the, The second segment here, the the second segment also has like a kind of dated look back into New York of nineteen, what was it, ninety four, right?
0: I mean, pre-Disneyland New York,
1: right? Because it was like the very <laughs> beginning of you know cleaning up downtown, and like they're like the talking, tourists. you know, let's bring this this uh, piece from your church downtown, and then like who would go? Because I think it was the Bronx that they were in, right? Yeah, um, They're in I, the South Bronx. Yeah. South Bronx, yeah. I had that
0: written Yeah, it's down. like
1: who would go to the Bronx? And now it's like, you know, um, I mean, Bro- Bronx and Brooklyn, different places, obviously. But I just think of there was that, I don't know, a few years ago, a little sketch called The Settlers of Brooklyn, where it was like a ad for basically like the Settlers of Catan, the, the game but it was like for Brooklyn
0: making fun of the gentrification Right,
1: then making fun yeah. of like how all these places are now like the sought after things and they're like, Oh, and they're putting up a new mixed use building. And the guy like claps his hands like, Oh, I, I hope there's a gym in the bottom of it, <laughs> you know? And it's like all these places in the show that they're like showing the cracked ins and stuff now, are probably a, uh, artisan cupcake factory or something.
0: All right, well, do any any final thoughts on the First Commandment before we move to the final segment? Nope. Mm-hmm. All right, well, the final segment of this, we go back to um, something that's not uplifting. <laughs> this segment's called Tang. And Tang um, originally, well, that's one thing I did, forgot to mention. I didn't find any, um, as far as the First Commandment, like any source material, other than maybe they wrote it just for this. I,
4: did anybody else find any background information on that i wasn't able to find anything um first and third segments are based on short stories and i didn't yes. find anything for the first commandment
3: um the first commandment was written by um one of the directors um i forget his okay. name um
0: was it the person was because it was it uh warrington hudlin who directed the segment
3: oh uh, yes yeah it, it, okay. it was written by him as well that at least that's who's credited with writing it in the um the opening of the segment all right
0: so the third segment is is Tang and Tang actually um the source material for that is a novel um titled Plan B um by Chester Himes and Val you were saying you had a little bit of background knowledge of some of his his work did you want to
4: elaborate um, on that a little bit uh, or... oh, yeah I don't want to put no, you on the spot um, but you seem I... like you knew the most I was an English major in college, so... Yeah, I think so hey.
2: Take
4: a drink. <laughs> Hello, English major here. Um, it also, it, it, it bears repeating, like, I didn't actually graduate from college. I just apparently took, like, a bunch of classes and then, you, got you know, remembered all of that. Uh, but, yeah, so, anyways, I, took called... <laughs> I took a class called... I took a... I took a class called Popular Modernisms, and it talks. We focused a lot on genre fiction from the early uh, 20th century. And so we read, like, Dashiell Hammett, and Uh we read some other, like, detective fiction and detective noir. And Chester Himes is, like, the, like, he was called, like, the Dashiell Hammett of Brooklyn. Um, And he had a lot to do with, like, the, like the the rage in Brooklyn is what it was called, and um, he was just like, like detective fiction isn't like my thing, um, but it that was like where I encountered him, um, and I didn't, I didn't really know a lot about the genre at the time or genre fiction in general. That was kind of like my whole introduction to it, but I also didn't really think about there being like black detective fiction that tells like specifically black stories. Cause like at that point, the only like prominent black authors I'd encountered uh, from the 20th century was like Ralph Ellison's invisible man, um, which is, you know, a fantastic novel. If, if anyone wants more homework, Um, doesn't have anything to do with this episode, but you know, it's about the experience of um, black masculinity in the 20th century United States. But yeah, so that was that was my encounter with Chester Himes was um, I can't remember what book we read of his, um, but it was a it, it was a detective noir, you know, entertaining and that was what he was famous for.
1: See, I read those all the time. I actually got into them <laughs> yeah, because I knew- of um uh, cover art and there's like specific cover so artists good. that are. Um, my favorite is, um uh robert mcginnis and his stuff is amazing so i just started collecting a bunch of these paperbacks with his art on it and then i was like i might as well read them and they are very dated they are very sexist they're very racist but they're also kind of fun you know if you just glaze over or like if you realize where they were coming from at the time and you take everything with a very large grain of salt. <laughs> um, they're also very anti-hippy, because <laughs> a lot of them were written they like <laughs> they were written right as hippies were being labeled as hippies. In fact, like half the books were written, and they're like angry and making fun of uh, beatniks. And then like sometime yeah. around like 19, basically the summer of love. 60, what is that, 67 mm-hmm. um, Yeah so like right around 66 to 67 They they'd like just Do an abrupt turn of calling people Beatniks to calling people hippies um, But yeah It's funny that this guy is uh, A detective Type Because the one of the two Main actors in this Plays a detective On Pushing Daisies
4: Oh my gosh, that's on my list of things to watch. Chi McBride, yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> which I remember. I remember Chi McBride from Boston Public. Oh right. Um, which yeah, was like he's, a, he's like the a principal. random network drama. Yeah, he's the principal. I misspoke earlier. Um, Chester Himes was known for his Harlem detective novels. I had the wrong um, Burrow. Right. Well, so um, this,
0: from what I could tell, just with the limited amount of research I did. Um, that Plan B was a larger novel that actually took place during a time of a um, of a race war that's going on in the story, and this story Tang is taken from the very beginning of that because it's like I think eventually the story shifts to other characters, but
2: this but is this how is, it all began. This is like
0: how it all starts, and so this central story, the short story, is like a snippet from a larger story. From the, from the book Plan B, and it centers around two characters in an apartment and their conflict. Um, and uh, it, you have Tang, um, you have the character who's like her nickname is Tang, I believe. Is
1: or that? it could be her actual yeah, name.
0: I'm not her
2: sure.
1: Name.
0: Yeah, who's played by uh, Jai Parker, who was in Friday. And Hustle and Flow
3: mm-hmm. um, She actually won a Cable Ace Award voice. For this role um, In Cosmic Slop
0: Yeah?
1: Yeah. Cool. There was some
3: recognition so, yeah, <laughs>
0: Okay. Alright um, And then like we were saying um, uh, Chi McBride plays uh, the character of T-Bone And they are a couple And they are um, Having a rough time In it's a run down a... Apartment complex That's basically like a slum And everybody around them is also having a rough time. You hear people fighting through the walls and they're fighting and you get from the outside, like it, it shows a photo, like a family photo, um, you know, everybody having a black eye and right. you get. So
1: Tang grew up in a house with an abusive father who is also abusive to her mother. And it just seems like it's, it's portraying a tradition of abusive males.
0: Yeah yeah, and she is so tiny, like the actress playing her. She's so tiny in in comparison to her partner in this, but it's just you know, you feel like the imminent threat, like any physical violence would be, you know a huge thing because just there's such a huge disparity in their in their two physical sizes and she's you the way she behaves, you see, you know, she's kind of cowers when she's gonna say things and she's trying to drum up her courage to stand up for herself and she's trying to, Figure out how to like tell her partner T Bone that she's not gonna go run out and do horrible things to herself to make money so that they can survive, which is basically what's going on in this little little apartment scene, and it's very much like a play. Yeah, it feels very much like a play because
1: it's all in one room or two rooms. It's in the living room, the bedroom, and there's a one shot of the hallway. Mm-hmm. You know when they when they deliver the flowers.
3: Yeah, this (laughs) this actually in the like the the flower delivery guy, the um the two people trapped in an apartment, the whole like the the atmosphere of like a world falling apart around you that you like hear but you don't experience directly. This segment Mm -hmm. felt the most twilight zony to me. Oh Um, yeah
4: yeah. by
5: far Yeah
3: yeah this 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 this, Rob Serling would have loved this one. Um and
4: it reminded me of who's afraid of virginia wolf a little bit oh because you have like this it's the center narrative about this couple and they have like this dependency on each other but they're also like actively trying to destroy each other yeah
0: yeah and like it's i don't know It's because i haven't read plan b i don't know the greater context of like the delivery that happens in the story, like where that actually comes from. But in this, it's shown as this young guy in like an old timey bellhop like looking outfit shows up with a giant box of flowers, we think, and he delivers it to the door in the midst of these two, you know, having a verbal altercation back and forth and like a little power struggle. And
1: T right. um, Bone and Tang are in the middle of a giant fight, and then fight. the doorbell yeah. rings. And in comes a box of, quote unquote, flowers. And we
0: see the guy who delivers it disintegrate into thin air after he, after he delivers it. But, but you hear knocks on other doors. So you get, you know, you get the sense that, this, whatever this entity is, is going
1: right in the background. Door door. Everybody's getting a delivery. Yeah. This oh, yeah.
0: Whole apartment. Yeah. Complex. And and then there's a fight about well, what is it? And you know, who sent this? So the flowers, they immediately assume that they're flowers because it's a flower box. And then um, T-Bone, like, sets it down, I believe. And then there's a thud, like a really loud thud. You're like, that's not flowers. And and while he's doing that, Tang is reading the note. And there's, you know, T-Bone has anxiety because it's implied that he can't read. And so he's having her read it and she's not spilling out what it is exactly. And they're right, fighting about that. And that's when that thud happens. And then it's like, Oh, you know, they have the
1: Right. And, and the it's o a,
0: expletive moment, there's yeah. a very,
1: um, there's just like a tiny bit of, uh, a, Oh, uh, where they open, he opens the box. She doesn't know what's in it, but he knows. And it's, it's, and uh, she knows
0: what's on the note and he doesn't. Right. And he yeah. That's awesome. <clears throat>
1: And so, like the two of them, kind of realize that weird, bad stuff is going down at the same time, but for different reasons.
5: Mm-hmm. So what we
1: find out is that the flower box contains a rifle.
0: Yeah. Yeah, big old, I mean,
3: big old bolt action affair.
1: Yeah. 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 I, I don't remember exactly. Uh, I don't know. Like a. Uh, it's like a military, like older military, like an M1 Grand or something. I don't remember exactly what it was or some kind of a hunting rifle. doesn't really matter. Rifle with big old giant bullets to put in there.
0: Well, and the, the note says something to the effect of the revolution is at hand to wait for their instructions. Right. And so Tang gets really excited. She's just like, finally, you know, we'll have the upper hand. We can right. do something about our circumstances. And
1: she's ready to go take everything that... You know she wants,
0: and T Bone's like I I don't want to go back to jail. I this is a trap. He's right. suspicious and rightly so. You know, so they're just like have these two different ideas about what they think is going to happen, which leads to more fighting and more fighting. And
1: right. um, now they're fighting over she wants to join a revolution that she heard about three seconds ago, <laughs> and he wants to stay in his house and cover up all the windows and hide away from this revolution yeah she's and, and, and watch TV it because he doesn't believe the revolution is gonna go in his favor
5: yeah
0: and so they yeah she ends up getting a hold of um, the bullets before he's even I think aware of where they are
1: and, right because um, he's hiding the gun not even knowing there's ammunition to be found or maybe he just assumes it's already preloaded or whatever.
0: I have to say, too, like, in the sequence, like, She McBride is awesome, but, like, Jai Parker, when she's basically, she's kind of teases him into thinking that they're going to have sex, and then she starts going off about, like, wetness and water because she knows he probably he drank a bunch of beer and he has to pee, and she has to get him out of the room so she can load the gun, because she's got a plan now. This
2: yeah, she is yeah.
0: inspired to rise up, <laughs> and she her just whole little speech about that that she delivers to oh, mess with him to make him pee is so good and there's like expressions on her face and the way she performs this this little this little dialogue bit of dialogue is so engaging and captivating She just she's awesome
1: you said it was a cable ace award she got for it
3: yeah it's apparently a now defunct award they stopped giving him out in 1997 but they were <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, but they were um, for excellence in cable programming, um, and she won an award
1: for that year, apparently. Nice. Yeah.
2: But um, yeah,
1: she was she was great in this. I mean, um, he was great in it as well. They were well. great
0: together, like, yeah. playing off each other, but she really, I kind of feel like she kind of stole it in but a lot of But you
1: really, places. like, it felt like a stage production. Though, yeah. Like, a very, like, intimate, in-depth, um, just personal stage production kind of thing. Yeah, you're right there with.
3: I I was surprised at the the complexity of both of these characters because um, the the character of T Bone, you know, you're introduced to him and he's like he's a lazy, abusive piece of shit who doesn't want to, you know, and he's clearly exploiting his girlfriend, wife. I think they're married. Clearly exploiting. His, yeah, yeah, they're married. Yeah, they're yeah married. his wife. Um, but you get these like, you know, you you feel for him as the. Uh, thing goes on and you're like oh okay well he's like he's poorly educated and he's using um you know his his uh position as an oppressed person to excuse his own laziness but it's obvious that he's been like uh you know like that he's um a victim of a poor education system you know obviously he's
1: probably he's probably tried yeah yeah has been smacked down enough times yeah. that he just stopped trying. Yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's
3: just given up, and I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting him to be kind of a, a cartoonish villain, um, and uh, Tang's character also goes from being this, like, you know, kind of a victim person who's trying to get out of this bad relationship she's in um, to, like, the, there's a bunch of religious stuff she starts saying, and, and, mm-hmm. and she, like, she gets... Obviously, she's been in a bad position for a while, but she, um, you know, she she pretty quickly on screen is like, okay, screw it, I'm going to murder this guy and I'm getting out of here, um, which mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting as
1: quickly. Um right. But
3: there's, there's, yeah, there's more depth than uh, I would have guessed. Um, yeah. Yeah, just based on the premise. Yeah,
1: because she goes for a while, she has, like, a very long monologue about how, her whole life growing up being you know beaten by her father and you know and her mother i remember what her mother was doing that she didn't like either but like she kept referencing that she would just read the bible and she would like you know god has better things intended for you and you know respect thy mother and father respect the husband you know respect all these things god has better things and then she's like and now god's given me a gun
0: (laughs) right yeah she's like i she's, she's like, like I thank kept, you god I, kept the faith. I see
1: what you want
0: i kept the faith and now and now there's a plan there really is a plan like because she was like trying to cope by telling herself there's there's a plan for me and then she says oh here we go mm-hmm.
2: and, clearly this
0: and,
3: gun and, is part of the plan
0: and it and, and it ends really darkly because it ends like she she pulls she pulls like the, the the big rifle is that what it like what kind yeah. of rifle it is i'm I'm not well versed in guns. It's, it's a
1: bolt-action
0: rifle. Yeah. She pulls a gun on T-bone. T-bone has a gun, a little handgun. Well,
1: no, because or... in the background, because you constantly, because we watched it twice oh, now. Right,
0: right. Okay. You, the...
1: And like I didn't catch it the first time, but the second time around, you constantly hear essentially the same scene we're watching.
2: In like you can every hear other
1: snippets of it constantly in every other apartment, everywhere. And then so while the climax of the scene is happening and she's finally got both the cartridges to load into the rifle and the rifle all together, um, and she pulls it out and is like staring Tebow down with this, all of a sudden you just like start hearing gunshots going off all over. And like, she's like, wait, they they said to wait until, you know, Further notice, you know, not to act until further instruction, and then like a guy like tumbles down the fire escape. Right, I forgot
0: about and that. And
1: he had a gun in his hand, and like it falls across onto the ground, and so now T-Bone picks that up, and now T-Bone and Tang both have guns, and it it just goes to black, and then you just hear a bang. Yeah,
3: and I I I really liked the uh, the the tension was really well done. When all hell just kind of starts breaking loose all around them, um, you know, they're having this big fight, and then suddenly, you know, from above them, from across the way, the guy in the the window that she sees earlier, like, there's blood everywhere, and people are just getting oh, yeah, the weird
1: guy in the window,
3: yeah, the weird, (laughs) curvy guy in the window. Oh, yeah, I
0: forgot about him. (laughs) He's like doing a little
4: dance, like, hey, look at me, (laughs)
3: Uh, um.
4: Yeah, it was Kang has this really awesome line in that final scene where she's pointing the rifle at T-Bone and T-Bone is pointing the handgun that's come through the window because their upstairs neighbor has been shot presumably by his partner. I would like to point out that the only two people we see get shot are both men, so you know, just something to ponder. Um <laughs> but Kang <laughs> is is holding the rifle. She's looking through the scope and she says black people can't get nothing right and i forget what t-bone says in response but it's something like this is a trick or something like that and then it cuts to black and we hear the gunshot and just that like that line is so chilling Mm -hmm. of like tang's assessment of how they received the the munitions for the revolution the revolution that was going to free them from the institutions that have kept them down and then they and, shot each other. Right. And then they shot each other. Um, which is essentially um, Reagan-era politics. <laughs> Just working. Yeah, yeah,
1: there was also, I mean, it that last little bit there connected right back to Space Traders. Because
4: mm-hmm. there was that mm-hmm. scene
1: in Space Traders when um, Go Lightly keeps going to the... They had, like, a weird kind of thing where it's, like, all the the activist groups for, they had like, the NAACP, and I don't remember NAACP any of the other ones. Yeah. yeah, they were, like, all meeting together in a giant church, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, these people got together really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, kind of an uh, off-putting idea, but, like, I think they were just trying to elaborate that these people were fighting with each other, and, like, that's the the thing they were pointing out and it was like uh go lightly was trying to like organize something which he eventually went to the the capitalists but um in that and also in uh this one with tang and t-bone where it's like both times they're like making a commentary of you know getting themselves together and and doing things for themselves and i don't know it was just kind of a thing where it was like an, yet another layer of underlying commentary that they were putting in there of what they felt was going on in america at the time mm-hmm. so many commentaries mm-hmm. so many commentaries
0: and so many really good performances in this there's a lot of just excellent acting in this
1: I mean we watched it twice now and the second time around there was stuff i noticed that i didn't notice the first time around i feel like yeah. you could probably watch it a third time and still pick up on nuances and yeah, so really...
4: i i watched this last segment multiple times just because i think this was my favorite tang i i just loved mm-hmm. it
1: it was definitely i think the best both directed and acted personally Mm. um i really liked the second one as well as far as the acting the acting went like and the directing i mean i don't know all of them are great
0: i was really grateful that the second one ended on a more positive note just because the the first and this segment have such a a bleak end you know it leaves you hanging but you can you can definitely make the connection that whatever's happening it's not good yeah um these people come to a bad end and and that's so it's nice that there was like a little bit of a reprieve in the middle
1: but each time you have george clinton to come in and tell a joke and (laughs) and... yeah to
0: make a make a comment yeah he's He's leading you. He's leading you through the cosmic slop.
1: Which is like, ah, like it. This whole thing is basically plays like a pilot, and it's like, ah, I wish this was a continuing series. Well,
0: when we first so watched would have loved it, to watch that. That's what we thought. We thought that maybe it was kind of like when you know they did the night gallery. They had the three segments for their pilot episode, and they were all really ec- excellent. And then you had a continuing series, and I kind of thought, were they going to do that with this? At some point, was that the intention? Because that would have been really cool. Um, so,
1: George Clinton's still around. We can still make <laughs> well, That's um isn't
3: Jordan Peele involved with a reboot of the Twilight Zone coming out?
4: Yeah. 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 It's already out. It's on Amazon, isn't it?
3: I don't know. I haven't been keeping up with it. That's just something I heard about a while ago.
0: Well, CBS. I I saw I saw the pilot episode because they made it available to anyone, and then in order to watch it, you had to have. A CBS either be watching it on network TV, which we weren't at the time, because we didn't have an antenna, or you had to stream it through the CBS service and pay for it. I'm not sure what the accessibility of it is now. And what I saw, I really liked. Um, I was hearing good things. It came out two years ago. Was that mm. when it first came around then? Yeah, I mean, pretty. And
1: then a bunch of people complained that it was too political, and I thought that was hilarious. I'm like, yeah, what? did you not watch the original
0: like... series? <laughs> like, no. So um so before before we uh did anybody else have anything else they want to add about the segment of tang because i'm realizing that we forgot to mention some cast um other than the director in the first commandment segment and I wanted to make a, a couple notes about that
5: uh
3: not about tang no I think I've said all okay. it. Yeah.
0: yeah I didn't have any more like commentary well so before be and I, and I feel bad that I forgot this i mean we did mention we did mention the director oh we, also I have the director written down who directed the segment. Tang was directed by um, Kevin Rodney Sullivan, who did a lot of television directing. Um, most recently, one of the more recent things that he did was that he did uh, several episodes of *The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina*, hmm. which I, really I enjoyed. Loved that show. Yeah. And then he also did, as far as like a, a feature film, he did How uh, Stilla Got Her Groove Back*. So he's he's done quite a bit, and he directed this segment. Moving back to The First Commandment, we'd mentioned the director, but we didn't mention um, some of the cast. And I wanted to mention that um, uh, Father Carlos was played by Nicholas Turturro, who happens to be John Turturro's little brother. What? Yeah, yeah. I I learned that today. Um, And he has been a veteran of television, um, often playing a police officer. He was on NYPD Blue. He was on Blue Bloods. Um, and then he also did um, – he had some parts in uh, some Spike Lee movies. He was in Jungle Fever and Do the Right Thing in, in a small part, um, which also John Turturro's in that, isn't? I have not seen that. I need to watch that. But I believe John Turturro's in that as well. Um, and then um, hopefully not butcher this name. Uh, Efrain Figuera plays uh, the Padrino. Mm-hmm. Um He was also, like, you had a lot of people who just did all sorts of TV, like, just kind of, like, veteran television actors in this.
1: Um, Well, a lot of the people in this this segment, because there's a lot of people in this segment, mm -hmm. are all um, New York actors. And New York actors, a lot of times, soap operas and, you know, cop dramas (laughs)
0: I feel like you end up on Law and Order sometimes. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Those dramas and the so many soap operas that are like filmed in New York that those people just once you get into the TV world in New York, you're kind of in everything eventually. And oftentimes in things multiple times playing different characters, which I always think is really, really funny.
0: Well, and, and he, okay. So, so, um, Efrain Figuera, and I'm probably butchering that name. Uh, he played the Padrino and he looked familiar to me. And I think the thing I knew him from is he did a, f- a couple episodes of murder. She wrote, which I do really love, but <laughs> he also was on NYPD blue and also the shield and, um, several episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger. Cool. Um, but I loved his character in this. I just I thought he was excellent. And then uh Richard Hurd plays the cardinal, the you know, kind of corrupt cardinal, and I recognized him immediately from Seinfeld, but he was also in Get Out and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Oh, wait, is he
3: the dad in Get Out? Um, no, he is no. not
0: the dad. He is another member of the like
3: The Weird, weird Cult. Like, yeah.
0: Weird cult society in that um yeah, don't spoil that too much because that's still kind of new. Yes, it um, is. But he, plays, he plays George, like one of George's superiors when he goes to work for um, the New York Yankees towards the end of Seinfeld. Um, so yeah, he's been in tons of things also. Um, oh, he was also in All the President's Men, as a, in a smaller part. Um, hmm. But yeah. so I just wanted to mention those. Those were like kind of the people we saw the most. Um, yeah, there was.
3: Uh, I ju- just in a little cameo thing, one of the, the hobos that first meets um, the uh, incarnate version of the Lady of Charity is played by John Witherspoon, who people may know as the dad from the Friday movies. Um,
2: oh, yeah. 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 I,
3: I, I just love seeing him on screen. I think he, he yeah. plays a lot of fantastic characters in everything he's in. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, his voice usually gives him away.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes.
1: Yeah.
4: Yeah, I just wanted to do that. that. Oh, sorry, Val. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, when I was looking at the IMDb for Cosmic Slop in general, just to like also look at what the actors had been in otherwise, um, I noticed that Nicholas Turturro has been in like a lot of Kevin James-related material. <laughs> like, a lot. Huh. And I was like, that's, Ian, that's was such a specific... Water. So, he was in, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Yeah, he was right. in, like, a Kevin James TV show called, like, That's Enough Kevin or something like that. Like, he's been in stuff, like, <laughs> even recently featuring Kevin James. And I just think that's such a like, wonderful, like, niche thing to be a part of so consistent. Hey, I wonder just, if we're friends.
1: Kevin James, yeah. You know,
0: Kevin, yeah. James, Kevin James recently was in, like, what from my heart, I have not seen it, a really good horror movie in the last couple years. So, I Wasn't shouldn't, like, laugh about the Paul, Paul Blart stuff too much. Um, I think so.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, what is the I name? I think, have to think be? James is
4: having like a career resurgence right now. I think he's making a little bit of a comeback because he has like a very like he really speaks to like working middle class borough dwellers from the East Coast. Like it's so specific. It's yeah.
0: Oh, it was Becky. It came out last year. Last year, or the year before. Um, anyway, I I have not seen it, but people within the horror community gave it really good reviews, and he's he's in it, and apparently very creepy. So cool. Yeah. So that's cool that he's having a career resurgence and he's getting known for more than just comedy. Grounding it out.
4: But anyway, Chuck just informed me that the the show that Kevin James is in is about NASCAR. So. <laughs> uh, okay.
0: Cool. You, well, you know. I know. <laughs> Here in the audience who loves nascar hey, so. Dad. hey blaine hey, hey blaine.
1: you finally got a shout out buddy
0: yeah yeah <laughs> a, a i little... think oh. <laughs> he's probably rolling his eyes at us because it, it was one of such a political episode <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: uh anyway episodes I,
0: mentioned for NASCAR. i've
4: been like super political though what was that I said all all of our episodes have been, like, super political, though. I th- I think maybe, like, at least, like, the, the few I've been in in the last year, that's, like, a trend. I feel like every every episode we're, like, sorry, we're not going to get political, but it's, like, it absolutely is because art is not apolitical. Right. I don't know.
0: I, I have a problem with over-apologizing personally, and it's just something I do all the time, and I'm, it's a bad habit, and I'm trying to stop. And, and I think maybe – you know, either either you're turned off by that or you're okay with it or you're engaging with it and that's you know Well the, it's your choice.
3: The 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 genres and the format that we deal with specifically, not to mention that the last year has been an intensely political year in the United States. Yeah. Um but, you know, television has always been a politicized medium. Uh, horror and science fiction specifically always, always have a lot to say, you know, sometimes ham fistedly, sometimes very with a lot of nuance. Um, but they're usually political messages contained in there. I think it's just, you know, it's, it, it's a product of what we're doing.
0: Well, and, and horror and science fiction, I'm a little more familiar with this in horror just because that's one of my favorite genres, but often reflect like the types of films and television that are being made within those genres often are really great reflections on where we're at as a society. Um, and yeah. there's, I I won't go into detail because there's many documentaries <clears throat> that explore this ad nauseum. So Yeah. I mean, I just that's just where we're at. It's just we're going to things are going to come up that are going to be reflective of struggles that are ongoing. And some people might be offended by that. And and you know what? That's okay. I think
3: that's you know, there are there are other podcasts if that's if this isn't your right.
0: (laughs) Well, and I don't I don't mean to like just like take that stance entirely, but I also don't want to be you know, we're just, this is a hobby. We're doing this for fun. We're coming together and we're discussing these things because we appreciate them, but we want to give them due respect and we want to treat them with some intelligence and forethought. And I also think that, um, I think that it's important that we not hide or water down ourselves sure. in order to try to have a more mass appeal. Um, so
1: also, I mean, when if the program's political, you're gonna talk political. I mean we didn't right. we didn't get political at all when it was Are You Afraid of the Dark? <laughs> you know. <laughs> true, true. But then when you've got that eerie show Indiana, did the politics
2: for when, when us.
1: You, when you've got the eerie Indiana episode where there's literally a demon from hell named the Donald.
0: Yeah, like
2: what else are you gonna
1: do? <laughs> you cannot ignore that, you know?
0: <laughs> right. Great.
1: Oh so. man, the Donald.
0: So if you haven't already, by the time you know, we went into our launched into our full discussion, I think you can safely say we all recommend checking this out and doing oh, further yeah. exploration. Um because it's quality and I just I don't think it's it's probably been seen enough. Um, you know, probably not by many people who didn't have an HBO subscription in the 90s, that's for sure. Yeah,
3: and, and even if you have an HBO subscription now, you have to find it on YouTube. It's, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, what the hell, HBO? Not like they're listening, but come on. Get let's, with the program. We'll start
3: a petition. Let's let's tell HBO to bring back some of their old stuff.
0: Yeah, I might actually check it out if they did.
3: There's yeah, right. Any,
0: I mean, more of their, their the, older stuff.
1: the worst witch was a super obscure you know, everything, and they rebooted that, so.
4: They
0: rebooted The Worst Witch? Yeah, they
1: rebooted The Worst with,
2: Witch.
4: With the, that adorable little actress from Game of Thrones, Bella Ramsey. Did yeah. you, so Drew, you watch the original Worst Witch? Because I loved that show as a kid. Yeah. Have it on VHS, I believe.
1: And I will, like, not every Halloween, but almost every Halloween, I will post a clip of Tim Curry singing Anything Can, anything happen. can happen on Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in so. fact, I think uh, did we end an episode with that song?
0: I uh, think we, we did, did a Halloween, our... this
1: Halloween special special. Halloween I think we special ended special with special. that song.
0: Yeah, with our with our guest Nathan Toll.
1: Yeah. That was a fun yeah. episode. That was a really so. fun
0: episode. So, um, I think I think we're gonna wrap that up but
1: i, I would just... say that episode wasn't political but there's a good chance of <laughs> something
0: <laughs> yeah you know i was like chris usually kept us kept us honest yeah in <laughs> i was
1: i was gonna say he was yeah passionate. It, it might not have been political but that was when chris was still with us um rest in peace chris wherever you are um don't worry we'll keep letting political things pop out. Because <laughs> Chris was always the first one to make a very, very gallows humor joke about whatever was going on in the society yeah, at any moment he, of he time. Yeah,
0: he's a little bit braver than the rest of us. So it's good, it's good <laughs> that we have Val with us to, to help help us keep... <laughs>
4: keeping ...carrying on. the torch of uh, just... Self-aggrandizing <laughs> martyrdom. <laughs> that's think, that's my being, personal brand. Being
0: honest, you being honest about where we're at and how we feel about the world at large. Just because if you're listening to us, I think it's fair to be able to get to know us a little bit more, and hopefully that's okay with you. And if it's not, then maybe you know, mm-hmm. maybe you're not into it, and that's cool. But mm-hmm. I. Yeah, I, I, spent, I just, you know, I, I grew up trying to please everybody and, like, appease and, like, not rock the boat. And so putting any kind of content out there and putting your voice out there is always really tricky. And there's always going to be somebody who's going to be offended or angry. But, I mean, I think, I think as long as we're always trying to come from a pa- place of compassion and understanding and just, you know, be honest about how we feel, it's it's kind of, it might be a nice time capsule looking back. Yeah. You know, we look at look at what we've I created, agree. at least for ourselves. So thank yeah. you for listening. By the way, if mm-hmm. you're you know if you're with us and you're on board and you're 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 into what we do, we really appreciate you. And and that's that's great. We it's kind of mind boggling that anybody would want to listen <laughs> <laughs> to me. I mean, I'm not like trying to knock what we do, but I I really do appreciate our listeners. So thank you. And and it's great when you guys reach out to. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, any, any other final thoughts before we wrap up and talk about maybe what's going to happen next time?
3: Yeah, I just wanted to say I uh, I mentioned this uh, at the start of the episode, but if you enjoyed this and you like, um, you know, supernatural horror with uh, social commentary involved in it, specifically from an Afro-American perspective, I would definitely check out uh, Lovecraft Country, which is uh, coincidentally another HBO show. Um, okay,
0: and- now they've redeemed themselves.
3: Yes um,
0: I thought that was on HBO
3: It is, it is And uh, it's, I I think it's very good It's also based on a series of uh, I'm not sure if it's Afrofuturistic But it's uh, based on a series of short stories um, That I have uh, Lovecraft themes Without Lovecraft's patented racism Um, And it yeah, and it follows around uh, a a small group of black folks and uh, just some of the awful things that happened to them in the nineteen fifties with supernatural horror involved. Because
0: um, you need to add another level of horror onto the horror that's already occurring. Yeah, right? I, it's that sounds, it, that sounds cool though. Yeah,
3: yeah, it's it's really funny because it's it's one of those things where you're never sure. It's it's a lot like Get Out, where you're like, I don't know which is more horrific, the racism or the the horror stuff. <laughs>
1: yeah oh uh, that again not going into spoilers but that end scene and get out is in the theater because i won't spoil it because no one spoiled it for me and in the theater it was like that was such tension that end scene the very oh, end yeah the very yeah. end of but it you're
0: holding your breath yeah uh, you're like huh. Oh.
1: so good yeah. anyways. anyways anyways
0: um so
1: go watch get out that is a great movie
0: I feel like people have already but you know
1: <laughs> if you haven't get with the program and go watch it because that is a great movie
0: <laughs> so anyway <laughs> we we are gonna come back next time and I, and we decided we we're gonna let you know what we're gonna watch next time because then you can watch it in advance and then you don't have that annoying hey stop the podcast because right. we're gonna stop gonna spoil listening to us
1: and go watch we
0: now. are gonna spoil every episode that where we talk about something we're gonna spoil The content that we cover probably that's just how we are we're gonna talk about psycho 4 which yeah i believe it's psycho 4 is it the beginning i sorry i don't have that in front of me and i totally botched that but it is it is the fourth psycho installment and it was a made for television movie it has anthony perkins in it it also has henry thomas and the lovely olivia hussey and we're going to talk about mother issues I mean, we could have done that for May, but we like to do animation in May. So, coming up next month, um, I'm pretty sure that's available to watch a few places, um, but we will be talking about that next time. Also, let's see. I think, did anybody have anything they wanted other than Lovecraft Country to recommend,
4: put out there? I know that every person in the world has already seen the Watchmen TV show. But that is also under the wheelhouse of, of, like, Afrofuturism and also um, sci fi uh, e reimagining of uh, society after the events of the Watchmen comic take place. It's it's so great. It got a lot of, like, mainstream reception. It's also on HBO because Regina King um, won an Emmy for it. And, I mean, it's an incredible show. It made me... Um, cry a it ton. Is, it, but it is I know
3: quite that. good. Yes, I, I, I'm
4: so much on the TV. Yeah,
0: I just, it's like we watch a lot of old stuff which is like part of why we do this show but that's awesome that you guys are watching new stuff and that way you can make make good recommendations because it's, I feel a little out of touch sometimes. I'm like, oh what's
4: getting an Emmy and now? Cool. What's this, Aerie? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I mean yeah. award
4: shows are, you know, years. what they are, but there's yeah, there's some really cool stuff that's been being made and I'm I'm all here for it. I definitely
0: feel like like the quality of television has just skyrocketed in the last decade and it's it's pretty awesome.
3: Yeah, definitely. In in twenty years we're gonna have a lot to talk
0: about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right, guys. Well, thanks again and we hope you are staying safe. And hanging in there. And we hope you'll join us next time on the Haunted Davenport.
1: Bye-bye. Bye
5: bye. Bye. The fact from us that life was really tough